0: And welcome, my friends, to the Generations broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you, Adam McManus. Our host on theworldview.com is with me on this edition. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. We like to get letters from our listening audience right in, cards and letters, via email. I'm not sure how you send a card, but send us your letters <laughs> at host@generations.org. At That's host@generations.org. And every now and then we get an email that just frames the larger issues so well and it really helps the discussion. This note comes across very insightful. Although I'm not sure the mom intended it to be this outrageously wonderfully ex- insightful note, but it was it's a good it's a good note. And it has to do with uh the church to attend. Which church to attend? Now, in America you have choices of churches. Of course, there's no perfect church. And you know the classic line Adam, you show up and then it's not perfect anymore.
1: Exactly. So, well This is what she says. She says, we feel the safest with King James Version. We've also heard you recommend, Kevin, using a quality translation like the King James Version or ESV. Are there any others that you would feel comfortable with? Our dilemma is that we live in a more rural area with only a few churches that are King James Version only. One of them is a hyper-independent fundamental Baptist with a one-man show and not much accountability. It is not healthy. The other is our current church, which has never totally come back alive after two and a half years after COVID, uh, part of the Free Will Baptist Association. So while it is solid on doctrine and translations, the heart of the pastors and people are just not zealous for God's house or his people. We are so starved and hungry. After much prayer, we are considering another independent Baptist church that is fully alive and thriving that is more flexible on translations such as NASB and ESV, but certainly not any paraphrase kinds like the New Living Translation.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. So, Adam, you know, the question of which church to attend, there are the good, the bad, the ugly, right? I mean, there there are churches you'd probably want to stay away from, way, way, way far away from. And there are churches that you know might be slightly better than others. It's very difficult to identify which church is going to be the best. And then you join, and then you know things start going downhill. That's the other problem. But uh, what I recommend is that people be a part of a church that teaches the Bible, and that there be decent accountability for the pastors slash elders in in the church. So I think that's pretty essential that there be some accountability for the leadership, and that uh, the pastors and the elders are shepherding their own households well so they can shepherd the household of God. Those are some of the basics. But then she talks about these questions of translations of the scriptures. Of course, this is one of the most controversial questions for a number of denominations. Some denominations are KJV only, as you know.
1: She feels, I think, caught between wanting to honor God with attending a church that has a translation that is not going to somehow compromise the word of God. But she also wants a church that loves God, loves his people, and is thriving and healthy. And so she's caught kind of between the the two.
0: That's right. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we want to get to the broader question a little bit, but I'd like to talk about translations. Uh, Protestants are always upheld that an updated, accessible translation of the Bible is important. And as you know, the Septuagint was a modern translation of the Hebrew Old Testament back in the 30s.
1: Not 1930s, just to clarify.
0: A.D. 30, okay. (laughs) Not 1930, yeah, back in A.D. 30. It was a modern translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in the 30s, and that, of course, was during the life of of Christ. And so the Vulgate was a modern translation of the Bible back in the 330s, okay? So that was, again, some 1,700 years ago. That's a Latin Vulgate translation of the Greek and Hebrew. So you've had these translations of the Bible along the way. Are you allowed any further translations after the KJV? I guess that's the question. Are you allowed? So you we're no longer allowed to make translations after 1618 or 1620. I guess that's the question. Jesus read from the Hebrew Scriptures, and he quoted from the Septuagint, both, by the way. I was just on a Roman Catholic site. The Catholics were a little hesitant to translate the Bible into the common language back around the time of the Protestant Reformation. But the Catholics had to admit to the fact that, yeah, the the. New Testament had access to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So that's the Septuagint, sometimes called the LXX. So there were 340 places where the New Testament cites the Septuagint, only 33 places where it goes to the Masoretic or the Hebrew text. So generally, the apostles favored the LXX or the Septuagint, the Greek translation and i th- I think you know you want to go for good translations you want the best translation, but are the translations inspired as in the case of the Greek and Hebrew, or as in the case of the autograph, which means the original you know the the edition that was originally penned by the apostles and prophets uh, and the answer is no the the translations are not going to be inspired like the autograph or the original Greek and Hebrew translations or Greek and Hebrew Bible. So we have to be careful when we place the Latin Vulgate or some other translation above the original text in terms of its inspiration and authority and then enforce it on every nation in the world. So we don't want to do anything like that. As far as the King James Version is concerned, I I like the King James Version. I grew up with it. I raised my children with the King James Version. We memorized scripture in the KJV. And I don't really remember that it would be a sin I don't think it to be a sin to read the Vulgate or the Septuagint or the best Japanese translation of the scriptures. I don't think I have to be KJV only. I think I can read the Greek, the Hebrew, the Septuagint, the Vulgate, the Japanese translations of scripture. I read the ESV, the English Standard Version, and I I read the New King James Version as well. So I think there's some Christian liberty involved here, and I think we have to be cautious when we shore that up and say, no, no, you can't read the Septuagint. You must read the King James Version of the Bible. I just don't think that's the position that we want to take. And if the KJV is the biggest issue in your life, I think that's a problem. Or if it's the the most defining biblical doctrinal position of your particular church, I still think that's a problem.
1: So churches that label themselves as a KJV church is kind of elevating the wrong thing. They need to elevate Christ, not a particular translation is what you're saying.
0: Well, I think in terms of measures, minors, we have to be very careful, especially once we label the church as a KJV-only church. Our, our fundamental label where we get down to the thing we are about, we need to say we are a biblical, gospel-centered, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit's, filled, God-centered, God-fearing, God-worshipping church, not a KJV-centered church. So I think we need to acknowledge the whole Christ, prophet, priest, and king. We need to acknowledge the gospel. We need to acknowledge the fundamental things, the God-centeredness about our theology. These are the sorts of things that we need to put up front. So I think it'd still be a problem if we said, well, we are a church that, that goes back to the original Greek and Hebrew. So we, we teach out of the Greek and Hebrew texts, and that defines us. That's the label for our congregation. I, I just don't think that's healthy. I have the same problem with labels like Reformed churches or family-integrated churches. These tend to be very unhealthy, and the reason is because they need to be gospel-centered, Christ-centered, Scripture-oriented, Holy Spirit-animated, God-centered church is not a family-centered church. So you see, it's easy to take a tertiary issue and make it the thing, and then the process, you you lose the other measures in the minds of your congregants. This kind of thing happens a lot. We like our distinctives because it makes us different from others. But by gripping onto those distinctives, we can wind up straining after gnats and swallowing camels. And uh, that is another means towards deadness and apostasy for the conservative church. And we see this happening a lot.
1: Another thing that occurs to me is the interest that some families have, and some women in particular, in putting on a head covering and believing that that is something that God has called them to. And, And that might be the case, but the issue is if you make that like the preeminent definition of what worship looks like, perhaps you can get into some trouble there.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's appropriate for you know churches to say, yeah, we prefer head coverings when our women are engaged in prayer or prophecy. That's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And, you know, I get that. That's all right. But when your distinctive becomes your measure, and it tends to happen that way because, you know, your distinctive oftentimes presents itself as a thing that makes you better than the next guy and in your mind. And I'm not saying that happens with everybody that takes the position of using the KJV, and that's okay. It's okay to use the KJV in your church. If you're a church of Jesus Christ, a gospel-centered, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-animated, God-centered, God-fearing, God-worshipping church that uses the KJV, that's fine. It's just when that label, KJV-only church, displaces everything else in the minds of the congregants that it becomes a major problem same thing can happen with the head covering yeah you can wind up being the the church in which the women use the head covering and then that becomes the distinctive and the distinctive then becomes the major in the minds of those who attend the church and of course the label as well so the question again is what's the fundamental label when the distinguishing characteristic turns into the fundament, fundamental label the the you know world view. Definition of who you are and what you represent—that becomes a problem, and uh, we don't want that. There are a thousand ways to get your emphases wrong and to lose the central part of the message in the Christian ministry. And uh, people do strain at gnats and swallow camels, and it's just—it's just not healthy. There are there are people who will go to hell clinging to their KJV, who didn't really believe the stuff in it. Or perhaps even understand what's in it. Mm. But boy, they are KJV only. And uh, there are people with head coverings in worship who are very proud of their humble head coverings. And they will go to hell. I believe the Muslims use head coverings. So, you know, there are those who align themselves with a distinctive. But that's not the fundamental I'm not saying it's wrong to tie the v- ennis and come in and wear head coverings and read the KJV. I'm just saying that people tend to want to strain at gnats and swallow camels. When we come back, we're going to talk to the question of what's the best possible translation of Scripture and then the broader question of what's the healthy church. That next on Generation. Stay with us.
2: What happens when a culture that was established and guided by biblical principles abandons the faith and seeks to live by its own wisdom? In his latest groundbreaking work, Epic, The Rise and Fall of the West, Kevin Swanson unfolds the dramatic history of Western civilization, highlighting the phenomenal impact that Jesus Christ and his people have had upon the thought, culture, and institutions of the Christian West as well as tracing the slow but devastating decline of Western civilization and the key factors that have led to our spectacular fall over the centuries. A sobering narrative of gospel hope, this book urges its reader to greater fervency in the work of discipleship and the development of an international vision for the church. This is truly a must read for any Christian seeking to understand the times and seasons in which we live you can claim your hardcover copy of *Epic: The Rise and Fall of the West* by visiting generations.org/store today. That's generations.org/store.
0: And we are back on the Generations broadcast, talking scripture of translations today on this edition. Do we have an obligation to seek out the best possible translation? It's interesting. Uh, We had a brother from Nepal with us for an entire week, and they don't have, you know, a lot of different churches from which to choose when you live up in the mountains of Nepal. You know, there's not all these different translations of Scripture to choose from. But here in the United States, you can choose, you know, from hundreds of translations of Scripture. So The original text, I think, is important, and there are reasons why I prefer the Texas Receptus, majority text. But, you know, I think still some degree of textual analysis is important. Accuracy and precision, both are important when it comes to translation. But that has something to do with how people understand words. The meaning of words, they tend to change. And here's one of the examples. The problem is that English language has changed. Since the KJV was produced so many years ago. Now, I guess we could do our best to create a community, let's say everybody in Colorado that is well-educated in the King James Version kind of language, these and thousands and such. And we could all speak according to you know that level of grammar or a certain level of vocabulary. And I think it's good to, you know, extend a vocabulary, work on the grammar and such. And here's one of the examples. The English language, I think, has become less precise in removing the second person plural personal pronoun. And that's been somewhat hurtful. And it's one reason why I do prefer using the KJV, that 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 plays an important part in my study of the word the corporate nature of paul's epistles for example largely lost when you, you lose the corporate nature of the word you okay that's what i'm saying is that the these and thou's ye's and you's they refer to the singular and the plural use of the word you and i think that's helpful when it comes to paul's epistles
1: so in your view there are two forms of accuracy as we look at which translations are going to pass muster number 1 an accuracy and precision that best reflects the language of the people and number 2 an accuracy and precision that best reflects the language of the original there's a there's a tension there isn't there
0: well there is because you have to take the the word the original word to a certain language and a certain people and so you're you're meeting them where they are you're meeting them with where their language is now, I think you want to maximize on both of these at the same time in your translation. The English language doesn't allow for quite the precision of the Greek aorist ter- tense, as an example. You know, the, the, the Greek language has quite a bit of precision in its verb tenses, precision that we, we actually don't have in the English language. So, so you're you know, right away going to compromise something in that you can't just translate the aorist tense into the English language as, as it was intended from the beginning. So even the King James Version would lose a bit of precision just by the translation to English, for example. But again, you're, you're striving the best you can to, to maintain what I would say both the scriptural accuracy and the scriptural precision intended for the words, the sentences, the, the meaning of the scriptures you're translating into the particular language, and here's the other thing that I want to bring out, and I want to, I want to say that you know God is given us His revelation. He's also sovereign over the preservation of His revelation. He's sovereign over the level of accuracy and precision by which the la- the the Scripture was given to us. So it wasn't as if you know He wasn't in control uh, in inspiring the original writers to the the penning of the Scriptures. God is capable of of conveying that information with clarity, with the degree of precision and accuracy that he intended for it. He, He is capable of preserving his revelation through the eons of time, and he doesn't change his revelation concerning himself and his works in any fundamental way. Now, what's interesting is that's not what Mormons and Muslims believe. But Muslims believe that God's revelation was garbled over time by interpolations and man-sourced additions and that God was unable and or not willing to maintain adequate accuracy or precision for any or all peoples. Thus, okay, so this is what the Muslims believe, subsequent revelations have to replace previous revelations, which is the purpose of the Quran. That, of course, would call into question the current copies, of what is purported to be divine revelation of the Quran. So, how might men have gummed up their original revelation, and where is their original autographer of these scriptures? They don't have it. What confidence could we hold that the scriptures of the Quran were preserved between AD and AD If God was incapable or unwilling to preserve the scriptures between 1440 BC and eighty six hundred at which time some other person claimed to have received the corrections, ergo, Muhammad, assuming the Mormon and Muslim position, what is to say the revelation of the Book of Mormon hasn't been fouled up and distorted in the last 150 years or the Quran in the last 1,400 years? So that would be my question. Now, my answer to that is that God doesn't gum it up, that God doesn't blow it, that God doesn't make this big mistake and cannot somehow preserve his writings, and thus we really don't need the Quran and we don't need the Book of Mormon to clarify everything. Here's a website that serves the Mormon religion, and it informs us what the Mormons believe concerning the relationship of the revelatory book and the Bible. Quoting directly, here it is, the Book of Mormon restores plain and precious truths that have been lost from the Bible. So similar to the Muslims, the Mormons claim that critical truths, once communicated by God, were lost from the Bible. Now, how many more of these claims will certain demonic cults suggest for us before the end of the world? So, already these two major cults have captured 22% of the world's population. What's going to happen next? Where will the next demonic revelations come into play, I guess, is my question. Joseph Smith isn't the only one to claim a special dispensation of divine revelation. Millions of individuals have given way to highly subjective forms of divine revelation when they claim the Lord told me this or the Lord told me that. We have to be cautious about that. But uh, no other ancient writings have enjoyed so much textual preservation as the Bible. And this is one other thing that should be a huge encouragement to Christians. The oldest extant manuscript for Plato's Republic dates from 8900. Think about that. The oldest manuscript they have of Plato's Republic dates around 8900. That's 1,300 years after Plato wrote it. So what assurance do we have that you know, we have Plato's original writings? We don't. We just simply don't not if it's 1,300 years between the time that he wrote and the first extant manuscripts available to us. Thankfully, the compendium of 850 manuscripts, scriptural manuscripts, dating from AD 90 to 1000 have been carefully analyzed and an overall precision rating of 99.75% has resulted. This also is determined and guaranteed by God's providential order. That is, God providentially determines his revelation. He providentially determines the degree of precision that will be maintained in the copies of the manuscripts over a period of a thousand years. God is sovereign over this. And and that there might be 0.25% degree of imprecision found in the text, no major doctrines have been compromised. And understanding the difference between accuracy and precision, I think, is also helpful. So we understand what Jesus meant when he said the scriptures cannot be broken. Accuracy is the degree to which biblical statements represent or center upon the true standard in the mind of God. Precision is the dispersion by which the data assembles itself about the target or truth standard. By this approach to understanding knowledge, the Bible must be taken as always accurate, but not necessarily precise to the level that some might wish it to be. So I, I, give, I give examples of this. Now, I'm, I'm pulling from my new book called Worldview, what, the, what we believe, what they believe, and why they're wrong. But what God has done is, you know, by his wisdom and by his sovereignty, the Lord has provided a revelation that's sufficient in precision for faith and life. We just have to believe that. On Tuesday,
1: November 15th, James Dobson program, Family Talk, he had a number of apologetic experts, including Josh McDowell. And Josh McDowell made a really interesting case for the reliability of Scripture. He said that the... Reliability of the Bible is strong as a document from antiquity, which underscores the legitimate claims that Christ made for his deity and the eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Christ. He said when you apply the bibliographic test to literature of antiquity, you have to ask two questions. First, what is the distance from the original to the closest copy of any literature? With the New Testament, we go back within 60 to 70 years. The average, and I think you've hinted at this, of any other literature is about 900 to 1,000-year gap. Second, how many manuscripts are there? The more manuscripts you have, the easier it is to reconstruct the original and see if it's accurate, if anything's been added or taken away. There are eight manuscripts of Herodotus, 193 manuscripts of Sophocles, 49 manuscripts of Aristotle, and the number two most reliable manuscript in all of history is the Iliad by Homer with 643 manuscripts. Of the New Testament, we now have 24,000 manuscripts, plus a discovery of another 5,000 manuscripts and over 50,000 portions. It's incredible, isn't it, to think about what God has given us.
0: Yeah, it is. And to to think that the first... Edition that we have available to us from roughly AD 90 was probably a copy of the original. I mean, can you imagine that? That You know, we have probably the first copy of the original, of the aut- aut- autographer, available to us. And I believe it's a portion of the Gospel of John, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, all the way back, I mean, literally somebody who wrote this this portion of this manuscript was was reading the original written by the Apostle himself. Mm. That, to me, is just mind-boggling. Yes. Well, I wanted to say, in terms of precision, people say, well, the Scriptures need to be more precise than they really are. In other, in other words, there are people who want to hold Scripture to a very, very, much higher level of precision than we would hold to any other document. And I give the example of First Kings 7.23 of the molten sea in the – Solomon's temple is 10 cubits in diameter, 30 cubits in circumference. And point point out the obsessively detailed scientists of the modern ilk might scoff at these inspired scriptures for not dialing the value of pi to 3.14159. That is, the circumference of the molten sea would be 31.416 cubits instead of just 30 cubits. Well, the point is that the scriptures are presented at a level of precision that God has ordained. So to question which content God chooses to make more or less precise puts God in the dock. Man becomes his counselor and judge, but then also he subjects himself to the 77 questions God posed to Job at the end of his story. Sometimes biblical data are meant for figures of speech, approximations, exaggerations, allegory, metaphor, as God would have it. And uh, so you know this, these are some of the things that we need to take into consideration, we think about the text and textual criticism and uh, how the text has been preserved through thousands of years is it appropriate to use a bible that speaks a different language than the language in which we speak and that was the question that was asked concerning the vulgate around the period of the reformation you know so many were using the vulgate in fact you were not allowed to use a contemporary translation into a known tongue or into the common languages around the period of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church forbade it. But uh, I, my question is is it appropriate to use a Bible that speaks a different language than the Bible in which we speak? My answer is yes, it's appropriate to do that, but we have to be careful. Should our religious life be separated from our day to day life in such a radical way where we talk in KJV language on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week we speak in a different language? To me, that turns into something of a dualistic view of Scripture. And we have to be careful. The the Amish fell into this trap, and it was devastating. My friend Joseph Graeber did a documentary film called Breaking the Silence, which, by the way, is available on Amazon right now for free, as I recall. Uh, Very interesting, showing the history of the Amish and how they were so connected to some particular German translation. I think the Lutheran-German translation of the Scriptures, they still use it to this day, although... Hardly anybody has a clue what is being read is what, what's being said in these Amish worship services, and it has resulted in a massive apostasy and a wandering away from the faith. So we have to be cautious about you know, pushing people back into using an ancient German translation, a language that nobody speaks anymore. And uh, so we have to be cautious with that. I like the NKJV at points. I like the ESV for some translation work. For example, I give the example of the word epitoma in 1 Peter 3.21 in relation to baptism. One of the most important and one of the few verses in Scripture having to do with the definition of baptism itself. I think it would clear up so much of our discussion, our disagreements, uh, or our lack of clarity on the question of baptism. First Peter 3.21 is one of the few texts that define what baptism is and or what it does, and it's very clear it's an epertoma. What is an epitoma? Well, the King James Version refers to it as an answer, but that's not what the word means. The word means an appeal or a prayer. So to, to translate 1 Peter 3.21 epertoma as answer, to, to me, just garbles the meaning of baptism for a lot of evangelicals, not healthy. The KJV translates it that way, as does the NIV, the American Standard Version. The NKJV does it that way, and it just gets it wrong. The ESV, the New American Standard Version, get it right. Uh, if you look at the, the, the word in, in classical Greek usage, and you, you compare it uh, over all the usages that you can find, you discover the word epitoma has to do with an appeal to God, that baptism is an appeal to God. It's a bath, it's a washing of the external flesh. But it's an epitome, it's appeal to God for a clean conscience. So as we wash the outside, we're praying that God will do the work on the inside. That's what baptism is, and I think it would clear up a lot of controversies and a lot of disagreements when it comes to this question of baptism. So these are some of the the, the questions relating to translations. And so, so I think there are points at which the ESV gets it, there are points at which the KJV gets it, and we probably all need to go back to the Greek and Hebrew to, uh, to clarify when there's a bit of controversy, when there's a point at which there's a lack of clarity. We might have to do just a little bit more digging. But I think there's a bit of a heartbreak for me that the English church is divided into a thousand denominations and 300 different translations of the Bible. This has been some, something of a painful thing for me. The breakdown of the unity of the church has not been healthy in the distribution of translations of the Bible. Just feels like a babble to me mm-hmm. <laughs> so i'd love to see there be more of a unity of the church and that's where the kjv and the accepted version the av version of the bible was uh was somewhat you know received and used throughout christendom at least in the english speaking churches for quite some time and i appreciate that but i'm not sure there's any way to put humpty back together again when it comes to the distribution of the the breakdown of the unity of the church in the western world
1: what is your take on what God thinks about all of these translations and all of the divisions and the denominations. Do you think his heart breaks over it, or does he recognize that because we are grappling with our sin nature, this is going to be the inevitable result?
0: Well, there's two answers to that, Adam. I think the first is that, you know, God wants us to do the best possible job with translations. And so let's let's apply ourselves to this. Our pluses and negatives, pluses and minuses positive and negatives to different translations, but let's apply ourselves to pull out the very best and and perhaps use different translations for different purposes. There may be one translation that we settle on as in general the very best. And so let's use that one over the others, but I still would say there are some weaknesses with every translation. There always will be some weaknesses with every translation of Scripture, as there was with the Septuagint. We find, we find you know, problems between different translations of the Septuagint, and yet the apostles still chose to use the Septuagint for the early church in those first number of, of uh, generations. But I'm not sure there's a fixed... To the lack of unity of the church. I think that itself is a big problem. The only fix I can find is to meet together with godly evangelical pastors in my community and just pray every Friday for unity and revival, even though, you know, we're all going to bring different versions of the Bible to the table. Uh, I, I, I think at this point, we're looking at a, a fairly, fairly large cultural disunity it's not just a disunity within the church it's a disunity within the culture itself the melting pot becomes a chemical experiment that goes awry america is melting down for a lot of reasons but partially because it lost all cultural and linguistic unity and the church has done little to fix that problem so yeah i'm not sure there's much we can do about that let me close with this though adam i think we don't want to talk about uh, healthy churches in your community, and I want to get back to this uh, thoughtful comment that this uh, this woman has made, and she says, "Well, we're starved, hungry, looking for a healthy church, a fully alive and thriving church." And I think to close up this discussion, we need to just conclude that doctrine is not enough; love is the measure. Here's a truism: here's the most obvious fact in the whole world: there are churches. They have the doctrine down real good. They've got the right version of Scripture in terms of translations. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and they have lost their first love. They're not on fire for their love for God and for Jesus and for one another. These churches are all over the place. They may be called the frozen chosen, the dead and dying, the proud Calvinist church, which is the oxymoronic church. But this is what the Apostle Paul says to this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. You know, the very best doctrine you can possibly have, the best confession of faith, the absolute best translation of the Bible. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So what you're looking for is a church that teaches the basic gospel message A God-centered, God-worshipping church that is Christ-centered, preaches a gospel message, the solid gospel message that Jesus came, died on the cross for our sins, rose again the third day, and uh, encourages to faith and repentance. You're looking for a church of robust love, a church that has made it through fire and conflict. They still love each other. They've maybe offended each other, but they've come through and they've forgiven each other 490 times. There's got to be a robustness in love. People willing to come back to the table, confessing their own sins over and over again, forgiving each other, restoring relationship. They don't just walk away from this. There has to be a love that uh, continues to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. Love, absolutely essential. The church has to be willing to confront the sins of the day. Is there a spiritual power? Is there transforming work? Are lives being transformed? Are marriages being improved? Or is everybody just getting more and more drawn into the world? Is there a lot of hypocrisy? Very little public confession of sin. That's a weak church. Do people love the worship of God? Do people show up on time for church? How's the prayer life of the church? Do people flock into the prayer meetings? Not because they have to, but because they want to. And they're crying out for revival in the church body. Is there a passion, a passion for souls converted, prodigals coming home, repenting, a passion for Holy Spirit work, transforming lives in the body? You know, doctrine is essential. It is important when it comes to the big doctrines, is the doctrine of the church basically God-centered or man-centered? Is this just another humanist church emphasizing the will of man, the choices of man, the works of man? Or is this a God-centered church? Is God's work in the gospel accomplished and applied in our lives, preeminent in the teaching? Or does the church always come back to what we are doing, what we need to do as the more basic than what God has done for us? These are the fundamental questions. These are the things that constitute the healthy church versus the unhealthy church, and I know we're way over time right now, Adam. Let's just wrap it up right there. Uh, Friends, you can interact with the program by emailing us at host at generations.org. Anytime, if you have any questions, any kind of interaction on any issue, it's host at generations.org. This is Kevin Swanson and Adam McManus inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.